namo dasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa namo dasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa namo dasa bhagavato harahato samma sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. <clears throat> I thought um, some of the questions that came up uh, and just where people are at in terms of um, Buddhist teachings, I thought I might just spend this evening uh, giving, the Buddha, giving the world view of the Buddha, put it that way, just putting you in, in, in his context and uh, seeing his teachings from the wider perspective of him and his time. And it, it might just help um, uh, for us to understand a few things about what, he's, about what he's teaching. One of the consequences uh, in the West of our Enlightenment, uh, the 18th century <laughs> Enlightenment, uh, was that, of course, we began this enormous exploration of the universe and the new science. And uh, eventually, of course, this amazing technology. But the downside of that um, was that we separated from the universe, thinking ourselves to be, to be able to be completely objective about the world, as though the world existed outside us. So the world's out there, and I'm here, and I can see it quite objectively. And for most parts, that actually works. It really helps. I mean, again, we, we have our science and we have our technology. <clears throat> but uh, as you know, these days, the distinction between consciousness and matter uh, began to be blurred when you're down at the infinitesimal level of quantum physics. Not that I know anything about quantum physics. <laughs> And uh, this business of how we live in our own world is something that's slowly being accepted by neurobiology. Uh, materialists would go as far as to say that <clears throat> uh, everything is created through the brain and that our consciousness and the mind are simply, uh, the word is epiphenomena, or that which arises from given conditions. So, um, you know, the fact that we put all these bits of metal and stuff together uh, and then fire it up and the car moves itself. See? So <clears throat> uh, just as an aside, when I went to Kandaboda, they, uh, the monks were very proud to tell me that they were vegetarians. And I said, oh, that's very good. I also tend to vegetarianism because it's not our rule. You know, we can eat whatever's offered. Anyway, first meal, the fish turns up, you see. And uh, one of... <laughs> One of uh, a Western monk turns to me and says, well, in Sri Lanka, he says, fish are animated, self-propelling vegetables. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's the materialist view. <laughs> so uh, from, from that sort of materialism, that's all we are. We're animated, self-propelling uh, material objects. But one thing, of course, that uh, it does point to is that we are actually uh, creating our own worlds. 
Now, that actually goes back to the way the ancients thought. Uh, I think both in Western Europe, in terms of Socrates, uh, but definitely in the East, in uh, the the times 2,500 years ago or more. There was no separation between the world and the consciousness of it. That was well understood. Oh, that was that was the world view. So <clears throat> there are certain questions that are put to the Buddha. In fact, they're put to any spiritual teacher, but they were these metaphysical statements. Was the world infinite or finite? Was the world eternal or not so? And the Buddha remained silent. They're known as the indeterminate questions because he never answered yes or no. Now, the problem... Uh, for the Buddha at that time was that to say the world was infinite would have meant that consciousness was infinite. To say the world was eternal would have meant that consciousness was eternal. If he said it wasn't infinite and wasn't eternal, then it meant that consciousness wasn't eternal either or infinite. And when I'm using the word consciousness, it's all a bit confusing these days because it's, it's being studied But if you look at uh, what I mean by consciousness is the sense of self, a person, a soul. So if he he had said yes on one side, he would have been accused of being an eternalist. And if he'd have said no, he would have entered the annihilationist camp. Uh, Because he made no answer to that, it remained, as it were, up in the air. When it came to the self, as I've pointed out during the week, there's never a statement in the scriptures, as far as I know, where he says there is no self. It's a technique which he asks us to use to define what we really are. So now the self in those times was defined as permanent. So this equals, shall we say, the soul, as we would understand it these days, the soul or the spirit. It was eternal. If it was eternal, it couldn't change because change meant that it wasn't, that it was in a process. So there was something about the soul or self or person which was eternal. Uh, just Just to clarify things, I'll just use the word self. But you'll understand every time I use this word self, I mean what we would normally mean by soul or spirit. It was in control of itself. It could not be not in control of itself, in which case it would mean that it was split into different parts. Right? And if it was in control of itself, it could always be happy. So these three things were understood to be the sort of basic characteristics of a self or a soul. And again, the Buddha was absolutely silent. So that's why the Jains said, the materialists say there is no soul, And the Jains and the Brahmins say there is a soul. And the Buddhists can't make their mind up. (laughs) Good one. So so he created enormous confusion at that time by not coming down on one side or the other. Okay? When he then is asked questions which concern the soul or the self... Uh, he always says this is the wrong question. This is not properly put. Okay? And one of the questions is, 
and this goes back to this business of consciousness and the world being one and the same thing, is where is it that the four great elements come to an end? Now, the four great elements were fire, earth, water, and air, which stand for the heat of, the, you know, temperature, uh, pressure, gravity, call it that, um, movement, and cohesion. So there were qualities which could be directly experienced by people, and they were also qualities of the world. So, for instance, when, when I touch this uh, bowl, it's hard. So it has the quality of hardness, and it's cold. So it has the quality of, of heat, uh, fire. So uh, the question was, where do these come to an end? In other words, uh, is there some form of annihilation? Now, that's, the, that's the underlying question. And the Buddha says that is the wrong, you're asking the wrong sort of question. The right sort of question is, where do the four great elements not find a footing? Okay? Not find a footing. And that's when he comes out with that phrase that I, um, that I came out with yesterday, that there is a consciousness without, which is non-manifestive and without boundary and in all directions full of light. Okay? So he's talking about something which does not belong to this particular universe. He's very clear about that in other, in other places where he talks about a sphere of existence. Now the word sphere, some of you might know the word ayatana, is used for the senses. So the sphere of sight and the sphere of hearing can't be... Uh, can't be mixed. You can't see through your ears and you can't hear through your eyes unless you're very lucky. <laughs> so these are spheres of existence which don't touch upon each other. You see, they're quite distinct spheres of experience. And then he tells us that there is a sphere where there is no uh, smells, sights, sounds, etc., etc., no earth, no moon, no coming, no going, no here, and so on and so forth. There's a whole load of things that he says about this sphere. Hmm? And in the, in the final uh, quote, there would be this one which is very famous, and it's, you'll see it copied in many books, there is an unborn, undying, uncompounded, unconditioned, and so on. And the word he uses for is means to exist. Okay? So to my mind, no matter what other teachers may say, <laughs> he's actually saying that there is something which is beyond this phenomenal world. Okay? Then, how, what is this self? Right? What is this self that he, um, that he is asked directly by... Uh, by a man called Vachagota. He says, you know, he's, he's obviously fed up, and through the scriptures, Vachagota appears, about three or four different discourses, and you can see that Vachagota is really trying to work things out. And I can almost see him being fed up and going to the Buddha and saying, look, is there a self or is there not a self? Right? <laughs> Don't mess me about. And the Buddha is infuriatingly silent, <laughs> and, he, and he goes away. So then Ananda Who's this cons who is his constant companion, says, why didn't you answer? You say, why didn't you answer, Lord? He says, well, if I had said there was no self, I would have been fallen into the camp of the annihilationists. And if I had said there was, was a self, I'd have fallen into the camp of eternalism, the eternalists. And my teaching is the middle path. 
It is neither eternalism nor annihilationism. Now, for us, that's extraordinarily difficult because, logically speaking, you're either yes or no. There can't be a middle way between <laughs> yes. You can have a yes-no or a no-yes, but you can't have a transcendent middle way. You can't have something which is somehow in the middle of that and yet not part of those two. And then he says it is dependent origination, which is what I teach. Now, this dependent origination begins at the point of, of not knowing. Now, this word avidya is often translated as ignorance. But ignorance in English has a pejorative meaning. It means that, you know, you're stupid or you should have known. You know, you're ignorant. But actually, it's a neutral state. It's a state of not knowing. And this not knowing, you'll see, is often, uh, to me, uh, a, little, a little wrongly equated with the word moha, which means delusion. But actually, at that point of not knowing, uh, there is only the potential for a mistake. There is only potential for a delusion. Now, that not knowing is referring not to a... Um, uh, it's not a description of something. It is that which knows, right? But it doesn't know. It's in a state of not knowing. And that not knowing now enters into... This world, we can almost say that there's a point in life at the point of conception in Buddhist understanding where at the point of conception that consciousness enters or there is a consciousness that enters into that fertilized egg. And at that point, there is, you can say, this not knowing. And as that fetus grows and becomes more and more in contact with the world, what this knowing knows is only through that fetus. And at the point of birth, and when it enters into this world outside, it only knows what the body can give it. Yeah? So this knowing that we have, this intelligence that we have, is completely dependent upon the body to tell it what it knows. And it's building up a world. See, it's building up a world. And it's building up the world through two, uh, through two energy systems. That's how uh, the Buddha would, would, would split them. One is the physical system, which is the body that uh, we have. And the other one is the mind. And the mind is not the body, but the Buddha again is very clear that there is a mind-made body. And it is within this body, and it's the sentient body. And when we are meditating and feeling feelings and feeling sensations, we're in contact, we're getting to know the sentient body which is made by the mind. And the physical body is, as shall we say, in contact with this. And at that point of contact, there is the uh, stimuli coming from the body and hitting the sense base. If there's no sense base there, then there's no direct knowing of it. So, for instance, with the eye, because of our retina, uh, we have these photons and it creates, it creates a little stimulus, a little, a little message, which goes into the mind. The mind actually takes it, creates something from it, 
and then miraculously throws it back onto the retina and then projects it onto the world. And we think the world is therefore an object that we're looking at. This isn't the Buddha's psychology, this is modern. This is, this is what they've discovered. So that on the retina, what we're actually uh, receiving are just little points of, of these photons, which I think in Buddhist understanding would be the fire element. Perhaps more obvious is the hearing, because there we know that hearing is just uh, ra- uh, air waves, right? pressure waves hitting the ear. So pressure waves themselves don't have any sound. They're just pressure waves. Huh? But somehow, when it hits the eardrum, this is taken into the mind and it's translated into a sound. Now this you can experience by making a very, very firm determination to wake with the bell. <laughs> if you make a firm uh, determination to wake with the bell, it may not happen the first time, you have to keep making these firm determinations, uh, you might actually wake up to not a sound, but to a tapping on the eardrum. And then that, that tapping is taken into the mind because the mind at that point, is un- in, again, Buddhist understanding, is another sense base. So there's the five outer senses and the mind which is in contact with the outer senses, which is creating your basic perceptions. And what you'll hear is the sound, is, is a sound, that's all. And as that sound comes, right, which would be considered a feeling, it's a subtle feeling, there's a perception put on it, bell. Huh? And as that comes, then, then you get that as a picture in your mind, that's understood and it's put alarm bell, right, morning wake-up bell. Hmm? Then that's put up on the screen, That's the process of perception. And there's again a consciousness, a discerning consciousness, right? For those of you who know the five uh, aggregates, the discerning consciousness, vijnana, again recognizes it and sees it as time to wake up. See? Then that's put on the screen, and the next discernment is me. I've got to get up, right? The I comes right at the end of this process, it's not there at the beginning. See? And we can go through the dependent origination to, to make that clearer. So, everything is happening inside my mind, and then, with an amazing trick, it actually projects it onto the world. So that I'm actually living in this, in this projected world, which has its picture image in my own mind, within my own mind. See? So... You can understand now that when in meditation this becomes obvious to the meditator, there can be no separation between the world and the consciousness of it, because it's all within this mind. Now, at that point of contact, there is a perception of that contact as either pleasant or unpleasant. And that's what we've been Uh, looking at all this time, this Vedana, feelings, physical feelings, mental feelings. Uh, Sorry, I've I've made a step. uh, What I wanted to say also was that the physical body that we have is obviously obviously something that uh, we can affect. uh, Perhaps in good meditation with yogic powers or something, we we can see more clearly. But generally speaking, there are parts of the body which we uh, simply don't experience. 
Uh, we don't experience our hair grow. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and we definitely don't experience hair as something that truly belongs to me because I'm quite happy to cut it off and do anything I want with it. Your nails, fine, if you pull them out, then they're going to hurt. But you can chop the top off and they're not me. I'm quite happy to get rid of all my nails. Yeah? And at what point does all that uh, um, pea curry that we had today become your body and, does, and, and falls out of the category of pea curry? Yeah? And how much of that were you aware of? See? Who, who governs how many enzymes go into the stomach for digestion? See, who's commanding the intestines to take out um, these uh, nutrients that we need? See? And when you're not aware of it, who breathes? Who's breathing? Okay, so there's a whole thing about the body which when we investigate our relationship to it, uh, really gives us the creeps because <laughs> we seem to be in it but not of it. We seem, to be live, we seem to be awake in this body over which we have quite minimal control. I mean, just because I can jump up and down and, and wave my arms about and, and, and use my, my jaw to speak and, and drive a car and, and watch TV uh, doesn't mean that I have control over the body. And this becomes profoundly obvious when it falls sick uh, when it starts to get uh, obviously old, uh, and when it and when it finally drops dead, anybody who's seen a dead body, uh, held a dead body, been with a dead body, knows that it is actually perfectly and totally dead. There is, there's <laughs> there's nothing there. It has lost it has lost heat. It's lost, there's no and the mind wants to create a face, even though the face is absolutely lifeless. If especially if you know the person. You, the, the mind wants to make it do something. It gives it a sort of life because you can't believe that it act, actually is completely and utterly, totally dead. So the body is um, something that we, we, we uh, find ourselves in but not of. And to reinforce that, they tell us that every seven years, every atom has changed. So next time you look at your face in the mirror, just say, you weren't here seven years ago. <laughs> and just consider what would happen if you did actually look in the mirror and there was another face there. So, but but because, the, because the change is so small and continuous over time and we don't notice it, we, we presume this is the same face that I've always had. Now, that's exactly what's happening within ourselves in this sense of self. So the self is that relationship we have with this psychophysical organism. And because of our identity with it, um, we don't see that, in fact, it's a, it's a false relationship. It's a false relationship. But let's come back to that, uh, because we're on this dependence origination and we've got as far as these feelings. At the point of feeling, we can determine something, we can see, we can experience something as either pleasant or unpleasant. And then the next step is a manifestation of this wrong relationship. Because wherever anything's pleasant, we want it to remain, full stop. We don't want it to change, we want to hold on to it, and we want to get more of it. And when it's unpleasant, 
We want it to change. We want it to get out of the way. And we do not want more of it. <laughs> so we're immediately, as soon as, some, as, soon as a, a sensation, a feeling, which always comes with a perception, remember, hmm, comes up, we are immediately in conflict with the world. That's the problem. It doesn't matter how little the conflict is, that we hardly feel it or not. We're always in conflict with the way things are from the point of view of this self. Now, the next point after this wanting, not wanting, comes this grasping. And it's at this point that the I comes in. See? And at that point when the I comes in, so for instance, I see ice cream, um, there's a, a feeling within me because of that image of pleasantness, immediately the old desire for ice cream arises, right? launches, now that, that desire has just arisen, but now as it were, I've got to identify with that, so it's it's ice cream, want, I. That's the way the psychology goes. Hmm? We, we put it the other way around. Yeah? I want ice cream, but it's ice cream, want, I. And at that point of I, it's very difficult to stop the next step. Because the next step is, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's your bhava. Now, bhava means becoming. And bhava is the point where you empower a desire... To create an act, a karma. Right? This is where you're creating karma. And every time we create an act, right, a new act, as soon as I do a new act, so we say I've never seen ice cream before, but I've gone to it with enormous greed, I take the first bite and I have acted. Right? Now, that act now... Uh, is creates, should we say, a little conditioning, just a tiny conditioning around ice cream, okay? And the next time I say ice cream, I find it even more difficult to resist. I take another bite. I take another loaf, frankly. Then this one act becomes a habit. Okay? When I collect all my habits together, that is my personality, and once I have this personality, my destiny is assured. Pure hell. <laughs> so it begins with this simple intention, which I then empower and create an act. So many acts produce a conditioning, a habit. And this habit, all these habits, are uh, pushing me into actions which I may... Uh, be, you know, like it, they're basically addictions of one sort or another. So the Buddha's pointing out that these are actually visible, uh, knowable steps in our psychology. Knowable steps. It's not as though uh, in our daily lives we just seem to be making tea, you know, having a biscuit, talking, picking up the phone. But all the time, these steps are actually taking place. And when we know that, you see, that's where the Buddha points to the escape from this conditioning. The escape from the conditioning is right there between the perception and feeling of something pleasant or unpleasant. 
and the desire for it. You see? So if we can keep our awareness, even in daily life, at that, at that sort of brightness, to be aware of when an intention arises, it's at this point that we have a choice. Right? The choice is, shall I indulge it or shall I not? This is presuming it's unwholesome. I mean, if it's wholesome, then one does it. Shall I do it or shall I not? Now, if I haven't made a previous determination, a resolution to resist that, which is another flow of the of this psychology, then I'll fall into an old habit. Hmm? But if I have made a resolution to resist that, you see, when that comes up, the desire, then there's a possibility of my allowing that desire to fade away. When the desire fades away, the attachment to that habit is lessened. The identity with that habit is lessened. And because of that, there's no empowerment. There's no becoming again. And in this way, these habits are slowly undermined. Now, every moment of our lives, we enter with this collection of habits. And that's this word sankara things that are created through our volitions. And every moment we enter into this, mo- into this present moment, we are carrying the, the, uh, um, the consequence of all past action. See, That's why the past isn't important in Buddhism. That's why when something comes up, to chase it back to your birth or, or, to, your, or to your horrible mother and father and all that sort of stuff... <laughs> is irrelevant because everything that's been conditioned is here and now. And the reason it doesn't appear is because there's not a stimulus that makes it appear. See? So, for instance, you may be feeling very well, feeling very happy, standing at a bus stop or waiting for a tube or something, and then somebody stands on your foot. See? Now, that little impulse, you see, brings up all, brings up this angry response, this irritation, now, we would normally think that's because this person stood on my foot, right? <laughs> well, it's partly because of that, because they have stood on your foot, but it's also partly because we have learnt to react to anything that disturbs us with anger. Right? And you've heard me say that these emotions, these uh, conditionings, if you look at them like a balloon, a blown-up balloon, and it's full of depression, it's one balloon, another one's full of fear, another one's full of hatred and all that sort of stuff. I'm only talking about the horrible stuff at the moment. <laughs> and you get a little pinprick in a balloon, it, all of it wants to get out through that little hole. That's where we end up with inappropriate responses. Computer rage, something like that. See, completely <laughs> out of proportion. And it's because we are tapping into a sankara, a habit. See? So then we realize that these habits are not attached to an object. They're coming from some other center within us, which is reacting to things and creating this inner environment that we call our hearts. See? So... What the meditation is teaching us is that the world that we're seeing inside is the world we're projecting onto the outside. That when we open up to ourselves, we're sometimes looking at feeling the raw data, these emotions, these attitudes, which are then displaced on an unwilling world. 
And if we stay at this point of being inside us, then it gives a chance for this stuff to purify itself. Now, when the Buddha was fully awakened, you know, at that point when he is awakened, his reflection led him to three understandings. He said, first of all, all the kilesa had gone. All these defilements had completely gone. There was no more suffering in the system. And there was no more potential for suffering in the system. He also noticed, he knew through um, going through his past lives, through memory after memory, that the um, uh, overriding reason for certain states of mind were based on on ethical decisions. On, uh, on, on decisions that were based, coming from this point of not knowing. And then his third insight was to see beings moving from realm to realm, being driven by these conditions uh, based on their ethics. And this ethic now goes back to the self. So what, we, what, he, dis- what he discovered was that this self is a relationship to the world. This not knowing has entered into the world. It has presumed itself to be the world, which means this body and mind and the world that it actually experiences. And what is it seeking? It's seeking happiness. All we want to be is happy, for sake. Huh? And in doing so, it finds itself in a world that it can't control. And that's why there's this constant conflict. So every time it gets a good feeling, a good thought, whatever is happening out there which it defines as good and pleasant and beautiful, it has to grab it because in grabbing it, it makes itself happy. See? But that grabbing, remember, is always based underneath on a fear of loss. And when it, when it finds something it doesn't like, there's always that aggression. There's always trying to annihilate it, get rid of it. And if it's too big, it wants to run for it and annihilate itself. So on one side, at its extreme, is murder, and on the other side is suicide. They're both escaping from something which they cannot bear. So uh, that psychology of wanting, not wanting, see, is the dilemma in which we find ourselves having taken a position of belief that we are human beings. Now, to say we're not human beings um, uh, is, not co- is not to deny that conventionally we're human beings, right? I mean, uh, we vote and uh, we think <laughs> and we're not apes. So categorizing ourselves within the world, definitely we're human beings. But in reality, we find that this human being is nothing but a phantasm. It's something that is constructed compounded everything that everything that we think is me mine self is actually entirely dependent on something beyond self my body itself is dependent on food upon air my mind is dependent upon input we know that if you um you know we have the uh, awful cases where children have been brought up with chickens you know that that famous one and, and basically, they can't speak anymore. They can squawk, but this, but this little child, he can only squeak. And he, and he walked like a chicken, and he behaved like a chicken. 
So that whole development of that child that was, was a potential for a full human being had been completely ruined in, in, in the chicken house. So you get that, that tells us that our development is, in, is also entirely de- uh, dependent upon, upon other people, upon the world, um, uh, and upon what's given us. Uh, remember I, I said in an earlier talk that the Buddha said that good companionship was the whole of, of the spiritual life. So if you just think about your companions, you know, people at work, people you know, see, these have a direct effect upon us. So then we have the problem, well, how do we get out of this mess? See? And that's what Vipassana is, is helping us to do. It's trying to find a position within ourselves where we can investigate all this business. And in so doing... Uh, as I keep asking you to do, whenever you get into that very quiet place of the observer, just for one moment when the body seems still and the heart seems calm and the mind is quiet and there's just that sense of a self, uh, just that sense of the observer, the knower, the experiencer. See, when you're in that, or should we say after that, ask yourself, what was the experience of being just the observer, just the knower? You see, and by doing so, we're actually drawing ourselves to a different position, both within ourselves and within the world that we create. We're slowly cutting off these little delusions uh, and big delusions and these wrong understandings, and by doing so, something is being liberated. Now. One of the words, one of the definitions of Nibbāna is unbinding. Um, uh, We talk about, the Buddha talks about the ten fetters. And these fetters are broken with every time we have a deep enough insight into the way things really are. And the first three to go are the idea of this, this, um, this mental body is me, or mine. Now that doesn't mean that that person never again suffers from a sense of self and what that actually means in terms of greed, hatred and delusion, but it's as though they've seen that and they can't be entirely fooled by it. The Buddha gives an image of ordinary people swimming under the ocean, right? completely lost. And the, the Sotapanna, this stream entrant, the one who's intuited Nibbana, is someone who's got his uh, head above water. Actually, he says the trainee is somebody who keeps bobbing up and down. So, <laughs> so we're all doing that, yeah? And, and the person who has actually seen it has got his, his um, uh, what do you call it when you're, when you're, you're not swimming? You're, you're treading water. Hmm? He's treading and his head's above it, right? And it's facing the right way. That's important. And the other one is the understanding that rites and rituals don't actually make it for us. Now, in, in the religion of the Buddha's time, uh, the early religions, which goes back to uh, the Greeks and the Egyptians, all that time of um, the first, uh, what do you might call it, um, that first level of religious understanding, which is really about power. So all these powers in the universe were given personalities. And the big one for the Buddha's time uh, was Angi. Angi was fire, 
which is for us now just pure energy. Everything arose out of Anyi. Anyi was the creator. And if you wanted uh, to be on Anyi's side, you offered, you offered gifts, you see. And the rituals became corrupt because at one time, the power of these gods um, was uh, so powerful that it does, you, you actually prayed to them. You offered gifts in the hope that they would give. And it became corrupt to the point where, during the Buddha's time, if you did the ritual exactly right, then the god had to respond. If the god did not respond, something had gone wrong with the ritual. And, of course, uh, you know, a lot of people were beginning to see through that as a little trick. <laughs> and the Brahmins were making a lot of money. So uh, the next stage of religious understanding is the business of morality and how actually it's morality which is the governing factor in our lives and, and in our well-being. I just forgot my train of thought there. I started off somewhere and I've, I've gone around in a circle. I'll start somewhere else. And um, so, uh, the Buddha, from the from the Buddha's point of view, uh, these uh, that that whole way of approaching life through power was actually not producing anything. And his discovery about uh, the morality, about about our moral lives, was something which uh, led him to um, begin his teachings concerning this problem of suffering. Um, yeah, no, I've lost it. Huh? Yes, that's right. It came inward. That's right. It came inward into ourselves. So, in a sense, he empowered us to find our own uh, way out of this suffering. Oh, thank you. That's where I was at. So, that's right. I was trying to finish off with Nibbana. So, you have this uh, stream entrant, right? And the, th- and the third one was a, a, a complete ending of doubt in the Buddha's teaching. Because now you knew for yourself what Nibbana was. So, this was the... St- now, uh, to talk about the Musfetas, there's a release, there's an unshackling of consciousness from those wrong understandings. And in the second one, which is the, non, uh, the once-returner, uh, where, where all the stuff about desire and hatred is attenuated, not destroyed, uh, then some of the fetters are also broken. Right? So you get this, this image of unshackling consciousness. And the image he gives is of this person now swimming towards the shore. The next stage is the non-returner where all connection with the sensual world as a place of happiness is lost. So there's no more greed and there's no more hatred. There's no more anger, all that sort of stuff. And that person is standing on the shore and he's unshackled completely from any desire for the sensual world as a place to seek happiness. 
can still be in the sensual world. He can st- he's still eating and enjoying, etc., etc. But it's no longer a place where he presumes real happiness will be achieved. And in the five last fetters, two of them are to do with these absorption states, uh, which are very pleasant mental states. Uh, and the, those two shackles, in a sense of an obs- um, a, a dependency on them for happiness, is broken. Then you get the breaking of uh, restlessness. Now, restlessness for me here suggests that all the, all the negative parts of, of the personality have become, have become just waves uh, within that person uh, to the point where there's just a little bit of restlessness in there. And the sense of conceit goes. So the I am goes. Huh? And finally, under, underneath that, of course, is the whole ignorance so you can see that through the image of the fetters, there's an unshackling of this consciousness. And what is this con- But this awareness that we have. Hmm? And when that awareness is completely unshackled from these wrong views and opinions, it has a completely different relationship to the world it's in. And the relationship is not one of, this is me, this is mine. See, So when we talk about the self or the soul, we're not talking about something. We're talking about a relationship, an ongoing relationship with the world. In much the same way as we use the word marriage. Marriage uh, sounds, like a na- sounds like something substantial, immovable, marriage. But actually, it's a relationship that is continuously changing between two people. Now, our meditation is helping us to withdraw from the world. And that's this importance of renunciation. Every time we renounce something for the purpose of seeing where the attachment is, gives us the opportunity of suffering the consequence of that attachment, the holding on, the greed, the anxiety and all that. And when that passes, some attachment has been lost. Some of the self has been lost. And the meditation is slowly making us realize that behind all this, all of this, there is something which knows. And that something which knows can re-enter into this and be perfectly at one with it and not be suffering from it. And that's the process of liberation. So when the Buddha says that the taste of Nibbana is freedom, that's what it means. It's freedom from the suffering that is caused by this wrong relationship which is shackling us to the world. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance, even though I lost myself in that place. <laughs> and that with your ardent effort, appamado sampadeta, uh, striving on diligently, you will achieve perfect peace and happiness, the joy of Nibbāna, sooner rather than later. Very good. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.